You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI Podcast, the number one tax podcast for real estate investors. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey, thanks for tuning into this week's episode of the Tax Smart REI Podcast. This week, Ryan and I are joined again by Troy Eckert of Eckert Enterprises for a deep dive into investing in oil and gas. In this episode, we discuss expected returns, cash flow, and why it's critical to have a long-term view when investing in oil and gas, capital requirements, and alternative options for gaining exposure to oil and gas, stages of the oil and gas pipeline, supply and demand, and other key factors, and follow-up questions from Troy's first appearance on episode 252 and much more. If you ever Considered investing in oil and gas, or just curious about the asset class, this is an episode you don't want to miss. We'll be diving into all of that in just one minute. Hey, are you ready to discover how to use real estate to build tax-free wealth? Well, this year we're taking our annual summit to the next level by incorporating wealth building strategies alongside our traditional tax and legal insights. Thus, we proudly introduce the 2024 Tax, Legal, and Wealth Summit for real estate investors taking place May 17th, 18th, and 19th right from the comfort of your own home. This extraordinary free three-day virtual event is meticulously designed to arm you with the strategies the 1% use to cultivate tax-free wealth through real estate. Whether you want to build, safeguard, or grow your wealth, this summit is your golden ticket. Visit www.taxandlegalsummit.com to reserve your free tickets today. Again, that's www.taxandlegalsummit.com to reserve your free tickets. We'll see you there, but for now, we'll dive right into today's episode. Hey, Troy, thanks again for joining us. For those who may have missed your first appearance on episode 252, would you be able to give our listeners an overview of your background, how you got involved with oil and gas? Yeah, I can do it very briefly. And I think it'll make any uh, attending listener understand that what I've done is committed my entire career to the U.S. oil and gas industry, starting off on the financial side in 1985 and then progressively through my career, moving to the asset side. And that just simply means that I understand how money works trying to invest successfully in oil and gas. I had my own investment firm for 22 years. I then decided the best way to manage and to procure and find arbitrage or opportunity in oil and gas was to get on the oil and gas industry side. So I've been involved in pipelines, exploration, mineral rights. And for the last 25 years under Eckerd Enterprises, I built a team that specifically targets ownership of assets under major oil companies' interest in the form of either mineral rights or actually participating in the wells they drill. I've had about a 38-year career, and uh, it's been one heck of a career watching the industry evolve. And here I am today talking to you about how other successful wealthy investors, high net worth, high income investors can actually participate in this great industry. Awesome. Well, we're looking forward to diving in here today. As a reminder for everybody who's just tuning in, we're going to be doing a three-part series with Troy. Today's episode is going to be on investing deep dives into the oil and gas investment opportunity. So Troy, I'm going to kick it back over to you. Well, so let's talk about what a deep dive means, because I think you'll probably agree that, you know, investors always say they they really want to understand and comprehend an asset class. And then when you start explaining that asset class, they lose or they trail off because you start getting into the details. Probably nine out of 10 investors don't like details. What they want to know is simply four things. And I think this is important, whether it be oil and gas, real estate, cryptocurrency, it's always the same four question has been since I've been in business, which is, How much money are you asking me to invest? What kind of returns can I get? What kind of risk am I going to take? And what time frame are we dealing with? You answer those four things and you quickly either 
attract or you eliminate potential interest in that particular asset or investment class because if it's more than I can afford, I'm not interested. If it doesn't give the return I think I can earn with my money and alternative or other asset opportunities, I'm not interested. The risk is too high, not interested. It takes forever, I'm not interested. So let's take oil and gas as a general market. What oil and gas companies, the Chevrons, the Exxons, the Oxys, the majors look for, and let's talk about trying to follow or imitate those successful companies and what that means to you and I as individual investors. So the deep dive is really saying, Troy, with 40 years experience, tell me how the industry really works. I think that's what we're looking for for the audience today, correct? I would have to agree with that. All right. So let's talk about it. Over the last 40 years, four decades, oil and gas moved from maybe drilling a vertical well, all-in cost, drill completed, turned online, less than $2 million. Today's wells range from $10 million to $15 million for a horizontal well onshore. Offshore starts at $50 million to $100 million minimum to invest. So big difference in capital. I could have put $100,000 in back in the 1980s, and I had a decent share or percentage of a well. Today, $100,000 barely pays for the cattle guard, the trucks drive over to get to the well. So it is the same economics. It is the same advantage. It's just the middle class of oil and gas has disappeared. So the first answer is what level of investment should an investor consider to directly invest in oil and gas versus just buying stock of publicly traded companies? I would tell you that we only deal with accredited investors, those that have a net worth greater than a million dollars, not counting your personal belongings or home. And we really want investors to think about, you know, if you don't have really a quarter of a million dollars or more to deploy in the next 12 to 24 months, you're probably not suited to be direct owners in oil and gas because you can't build a brick house one brick at a time. So let's start with 250000 That's kind of a, that's a target for 12 to 24 months of capital commitment. The second thing is, how much money can you make? Well, I can only make as much money as the oil companies expect to make based on the metrics they run. So most major oil companies want to know they can make at least a two to three to one on their money over the life of a well. It's not 10 to one, not 20 to one, not eight to one. They want virtually zero risk in losing their money. And what they want to have is a super high success rate and they're trading risk for almost assured or guaranteed return. So they like that really low risk kind of drilling exploration we have today. They're not going to go out and take those wildcat shots at the dark trying to make a 10 to one. So First thing is they want to make three to one over the life of the well. They would like to make all their capital they deploy back in 36 months or less. They're looking for, I put out $100 million. I'd like to see that $100 million back in my bank rotating for new opportunities in less than three years. And overall rate of return, they'd like to hit you know that double digit, 10 to 20% cash on cash return every single year based on the deployment of capital. And it generally falls into whether it's pipelines, drilling, mineral acquisitions, each asset class falls a lot along those lines. Now, don't get me wrong. There's going to be individual metrics for individual sectors in the industry, but that's generally the spoken parameters. As an investor, you know that you're never going to participate with Chevron or Exxon. Somebody like Eckert has to go get that opportunity, bring it to you, and they got to make a living doing that. So there's going to be a, a fee involved or some kind of a markup involved. And that's the differential between what the big boys pay at actual cost and what you as a private investor may have to pay. So the economic returns are the same, the potential is the same, but it might be slightly diluted because you have a, a middleman or somebody bringing you the opportunity to drill or participate or own minerals with those major companies. So that comes down to risk. Well, the highest risk in oil and gas exploration is not at the bottom of a drill bit. It's not at the end of a pipeline. It's the very person contacting you. So in my view, after four decades of doing this, 95% of your risk is the who. Who called you? 
who's managed your money, who has the opportunity, who are they, how long have they been doing this, how many cease and desist orders, how many Ponzi schemes they run, how many times they violated securities laws. It's the who factor. If you can find somebody who has the credibility of who they are and their expertise and their background and their you're truly somebody that's an expert at U.S. oil and gas. Well, you just made 95% of your risk go away, in my opinion. Now, the next thing comes with, well, what kind of reward do I get? All right. I understand. I got the who. I got the risk. What's the upside? Well, the upside is pretty remarkable, candidly, because by owning direct oil and gas, you get the advantage of supply and demand differentials, meaning every single year, every quarter, every season, every half decade, we see a constraint on demand. Maybe it's a recession, demand comes down, price of commodities come down because there's less demand. Well, then what happens is the freight train of drilling and activity slows down because there's less demand, and all of a sudden demand goes up coming out of a recession. Now we have excess demand and our supply is out of balance. So this industry is like a seesaw, high demand, low demand, high price, low price, and it goes back and forth. So financially, from a reward side, I wouldn't do any oil and gas investment without looking for double-digit returns. I need 10% and higher on any investment, including fees, or I'm not interested. Why? It is an alternative asset class. I also think it's reasonable to expect that your whole time, your period of conclusion, which is the fourth element of my four points, is time. You can't get into oil and gas expecting to trade it like a public stock. You can't trade it like a ETF. You own a traditional piece of real estate. You know, mineral rights and working interest are real estate pipelines or real estate. So because you own real estate, you have to have the same approach as if you owned a lot or a building or a house or self-storage. It's real estate. It has an exit value. It has a potential for a greater asset value. It has income potential, but all those factors have a whole lot to do with the ultimate value and the ultimate time frame by which you're going to own or hold that asset. In my view, I believe that anybody investing in gas should really take their platform and decide very quickly up front, I see energy directly owned in my portfolio is a great counterbalance to negative inflation, negative recession, because why? If I own oil and gas, it feeds the economy with 100% consumption from every human being in the United States using, consuming, or participating in the consumption of fossil fuels. So I know whether the economy is good or bad, hot or cold, I have 100% consumption by the American people. That's great. We're also the number one consumer in the world, which is even better. And we only produce 60% of what we consume, which means we're a net importer. All those factors mean what a great asset to own. And if that's true, then I have to decide, am I really going to take a deep dive and understand the tax benefits, the depreciation that I get by depleting reservoirs and what that does to reduce my taxable income, the long-term traditional real estate value, knowing I own it in perpetuity so no one can take it away from me. It's, it's real estate deeded and titled. All these things are part of the deep dive to say, in my portfolio, a cornerstone is going to be direct oil and gas ownership, whether it be pipelines, mineral rights, or participating in drilling of wells. If that's true, then as someone who decides to make that part of their portfolio, this isn't a, hey, I got a high income in 2024, so I better invest to get tax right off. It's really about, I'm going to invest in successful wells that will generate plenty of income the next two or three years which will be added to my overall income from my occupation, my career, my skill. And I'm going to see a continuation of participating in drilling and mineral rights to delay or defer the taxes I owe because I'm using the IRS a provision to say, by being an oil and gas investor, you get appreciation of 15% off your income. You get tax deductions and drilling of up to 80%. And you get to delay that again and again and again. So I've been doing this for 40 years. 
and I've just been moving my tax liability down the road. The tax liability is getting bigger and bigger and bigger because my assets and my net worth just keep growing exponentially because I'm using the advantages of participation in direct oil and gas to do that. So let's go back over the repeat. You probably need a quarter million dollars mindset or more over the next 12 to 24 months to start a direct oil and gas investment. The risk today, we're drilling about 99% successful wells because horizontal drilling and shale plays gets 99% of the time other than mechanical failures. If you eliminate the who, don't have a bad actor leading you. If all the company like Eckerd is doing is, is participating with major oil companies, I'm drilling in wells with Exxon and Chevron and Oxy and Diamondback and all the majors. If I'm doing that, I know I've got the lowest risk opportunity in oil and gas because I'm drilling with the smartest, best skilled engineers and geologists in the industry. So my risk is extremely low. Uh, then what I'm looking at is what my time frame is. I'm looking at being investments where a rotation of capital 100% is seven years or less. If I'm in minerals and maybe pipelines are five to seven years and maybe drilling, I'm getting my money back in 36 months or less. I'm looking for double digit returns. I mean, these are all the things that we want as investors. Well, that actually exists in oil and gas if you have the right leader and somebody who has an expertise to guide you. And then when I look at the, the time frame relative to return, I don't do anything in oil and gas that doesn't make me at least 10% up to 25, 30% return. Our oil and gas drilling right now, we're ranging 35% or higher. Our minerals are ranging 15% cash from cash or higher. And our pipeline assets, we're hoping to generate somewhere between that 15 to 20% return. So deep dive for me, that's the four big bullet points. And I can play off of that if you guys have questions or elaboration on that, or I can go through a couple of PowerPoint slides to expand on that. But I thought that'd be a good way just to get the viewing audience's mindset around what we do. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for that overview. That was awesome. I have a few kind of follow-up questions here. So say I'm an investor, right? I say I'm, I have 250K, I'm ready to deploy this strategy and we go ahead and invest. I know supply and demand can impact pricing and thus potentially cash flow. So like as an investor, am I going to be expecting a consistent return year over year or is that return going to fluctuate for me, that cash that I'm going to receive? It's going to fluctuate because every single day, the oil company that operates and manages the wells you and I would own, whether it be mineralites and the wells are drilled on our minerals, whether it's wells we participated in drilling, the idea that commodity prices change 24 hours a day also means that the revenue we generate can change 24 hours a day well by well. The reason it doesn't bother me is I don't look at boxing matches one round at a time. I look at a preponderance of the trend. I look and see how does the battle between uh, consumption and supply appear to be today, looking backward and looking forward. So one thing to keep in mind, and this is always stuns people, I go, but you know, we get paid for the oil and gas we produce off the wells we have. The oil company that manages it for us gets paid for, let's say, February's oil and gas. They get paid at the end of March. By the time they send the checks to, to companies like you and I, you know, Eckerd Enterprise, we get them out to our partners. We're sending those checks out probably in April or May. But you're getting paid for February sales. So right now we're at $1.70 for gas and we're at about $78 for oil. By the time March gets here, we could be at $3 gas and $90 oil. You'll get that check in June. So those checks will vary. The other factor is February itself has 10% less day. So I got 10% less production. My check in May is automatically 10% lower because there's 10% less days. So unlike a, a rental property or some kind of fixed asset, you have the benefit, but also the reality that your check's going to flow based on production of wells, commodity prices, cutoff dates, volume. But what I like about it is if I look at it in annual revenue generation, I'm going to look at it year over year. Now, let's face it, oil and gas is a depleting reservoir, right? So I would expect, all things considered, the oil and gas wells are going to deplete year over year, and most of the wells we're involved in will last 25 to 50 years. But each year should be less 
But let me tell you a little hidden factor. Sometimes in five years from now, we'll make more money with less production than we make today. Why? Because oil could be $120 a barrel. When I started, oil was $9.75 and natural gas was $1.25. So I've got wells that when they got up to $129 a barrel, I was making three or four times what I would make from 15 years ago because commodity prices are higher. So as long as your mindset understands these are major oil companies taking the responsibility of selling our oil and gas at the highest price, and we get the benefactor of being on their side negotiating that high price because we're passive partners. Got it. Got it. So just kind of recap on the the major oil companies. So like as an investor, you're investing like say the drilling, for example, and then the oil companies are selling that oil on your behalf. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Thomas. The industry has three elements. It's called upstream. So that's the part of the industry that's doing everything from leasing minerals, drilling wells. It's the exploration side. The reason why they call it upstream, it's like a river. It's, it's the headwaters. It's what starts everything, right? The midstream goes from the wellhead and they have to be the oil, the gas are put into tanks, trucks, rail cars, or pipelines. And so that's the gathering transportation part. So it's the middle of the stream from the well to wherever it's going to go. Buyers buy that oil and gas from the producer at the wellhead. So you have Kinder Morgan, who's a pipeline company. They're buying oil and gas and liquids from the producers at the wellhead. Then they transport it and they take it down to refineries on the Gulf Coast or utility companies or wherever. And that final consumer, you know, Pacific Northwest utility, they're buying that gas and selling it to customers. That's called the downstream. That's where it goes from refining to the actual end consumer. You and I pumping gas in our car or gas at our house. So that three elements allows for a very systematic processing and a value chain that's created. We, Eckert, we focus mainly on the upstream, which is mineral rights and drilling, we also own 1,600 miles of natural gas pipelines, which puts us in the midstream space. So we have the benefit of seeing two legs of the three-legged stool, understanding how one connects to the other and that value chain proposition exists. That helps me understand this in a totally different way that I understood this before. So I pr- appreciate you sharing that. I've got a follow-up question. I know we're going to talk about tax benefits on the next episode, but I have a follow-up question from our last episode regarding the 1031 exchange. Yeah, I think this kind of ties into to the investment parameters. So say, for example, I'm an investor, I'm going to 1031 exchange my property into, say, uh, mineral rights or into one of these types of investments. What is like the salvage value, right? Say like, you know, is that plot of land eventually sold to the point where now as a 1031 exchange investor, now I'm going to have to do another 1031 exchange? Or is it like just held indefinitely and there's no salvage value, if you will, to the point where they'll have another tax event at the end somewhere? Well, so let's talk about it from the standpoint. It's a piece of real estate. So the real estate is, well, what is what is the higher, greater value? So if it's a piece of raw land, you want to put a ranch on it, you want to put a convenience store, or is it going to have a Home Depot on it, right? It has a, a value proposition based on the interpretation of what the future use is, right? So in the case of mineral rights, we have oil companies who are the tenants. You and I as mineral rights owners, we're the landlord. They intend, they being the lessee, the oil company, they intend on drilling wells, taking on all the risk and liability and cost, we get a free ride. And they're going to go drill a given geological formation. They think they're going to drill two or three wells. And when we analyze buying that mineral today, we're buying it based on that oil company, how good they are, and the fact they're going to drill three wells and what that looks like in economic performance. Now, the salvage value, as you called it, which is what I call really the residual asset value, has to do with multiple things. First off, the cash flow being generated from those three producing wells, you can discount that cash flow back because it's declining and say at a given commodity price, 
you paid $15,000 an acre. They've been online for five years. You've already made back your money. What would that value be today? Well, today it's generating $2,000 a month. It's generating basically a 10 or 11, 12% return. Okay, well, if I cash flow that back, selling that mineral would be worth $7,500 at the end of five years. I take that back in and I say, I made 16% return a year. Okay, so I sold it. I sold it for less than I paid for it, but I made a great return. So therefore my cash on cash return, 16%. I'm making the numbers up, by the way, because I didn't do the math. The other side of the coin is, is what's happening today and has been happening for over a decade is that oil company that drilled three wells never drilled the second zone, the third zone, the fourth zone, and the offsetting operator oil company drilled in that second, third, fourth zone and proved that all four zones are productive. And when I go sell in the fifth, sixth year, the buyer says, well, I'm glad you got good income for three, three wells in one zone. You really have like another nine wells being drilled in two or three more zones. So I'm not paying you 15000 I'll pay you more like $30,000 at the end of five years. So I can double my money, plus I made all the cash flow. So the residual value is based upon expected economically recovered reserves by the tenant, the oil company, commodity prices and cash flow streams and what that multiple looks like. So if you look at the last six months, the $250 billion worth of acquisitions being made in oil and gas by Exxon and Chevron and Oxy and Diamondback. I mean, they then buy one behemoth is buying out another behemoth. What they essentially have done from, from my raw analysis of the numbers, they took everything that we knew as being a fair market value last September of 2023 and it's now one and a half to two times more valuable because Exxon, Chevron, Oxy, Diamondback said, the wells you've already drilled are nothing in comparison to the number of wells, number of reserves, and oil and gas reserves in place from the remaining wells and zones you've not even touched yet. We're going to pay you $250 billion because we think it's worth a trillion to $2 trillion in future value. So the salvage value doesn't have to be less. In fact, it can be exponentially much higher but you have to have certain parameters that make that value either higher or lower based on what I just described. That makes sense. So basically the value of the land could be higher when it's sold because of that. Is the land ever sold? Like if I were to 1031 exchange into this, like, is this like a for life type of thing? Or is this going to cycle out at some point and I'm going to have to 1031 exchange into something else, whether that's another mineral rights, another property, or we're just accept a taxable event. So here's how Troy Eckert personally looks at minerals. I've not, I think I've only sold maybe one or two minerals in my entire 40 year career. And the reason being is oil and gas, dead dinosaurs, plants and animals, carbon material, only located in certain spots in the United States. That's it. So it is the most valuable mineral rights in the entire US because it only exists over 400 million acres. We have 2.2 billion acres. So if I know there's finite places for oil and gas, and I know we are the number one consumer of oil and gas, and I know that technology is finding more and more oil and gas in the same places because they couldn't get to it before. I'm not likely going to be a seller. And here's why. There's no holding cost. I don't pay property tax. I just get revenue every month. I've been getting revenue for 30 plus years off minerals I've owned since the 1980s. So the difference is if I do a 1031 exchange, and let's say I sell a building, I had a million dollar 1031. I 1031 into a mineral package today. I'll start getting revenue in about six months. It takes about six months to cycle in, notify the oil company we own it. Now you start getting in pay. I'm going to get 12 distributions a year. I'm going to get a tax statement at 1099 at the end of the year. What I'm going to get is probably 25 to 100 years worth of cash flow from the wells that are drilled at the time I buy it, plus new wells being drilled. And I never have an exposure to cost, capital cost, liability, zero. And I get all the advantages of technology continuing to improve. So I'm going to give you an example. When I started buying minerals in Oklahoma back in 2019, we, we started this game plan we're under. I was being able to buy minerals for $2,000 to $3,000 an acre. Now I'm paying $12,000 to $15,000 an acre because why? As they continue to de-risk the drilling, de-risk the geology, 
the reserves, the extractions have just made the reserves and value and cash flow that much higher. So it is an asset play. Now, in our case with Eckerd, if you do want to do a 1031N and you say, look, it's a five-year game plan. I want to roll back into traditional real estate at five years. We've created a peer-to-peer market on our own app called Eckerd Insights. We have partners going in and listing. Hey, I, I paid 200000 for 1031. I've had cash flow for four years. Now I want to sell it. They list it on the peer-to-peer and we have well over 2,000 additional high net worth clients that are that are buyers. It's peer-to-peer, partner-to-partner. We don't charge a fee or a commission. We just provide it as a service. So you can roll right back out into 1031 if you want to. I started with a lot of my partners thinking they were going to follow traditional real estate, wanting to get out. And now they see their checks every month. They're like, why would I ever sell this? I mean, I'm getting paid out in five years. I'm making 15 to 25% return a year. There's no cost. It's going to last another 25 to 100 years. I'll just take the cash and go do other investment. I'm not ever selling my minerals. So those who thought they were going to sell, I bet you 90% have decided they're never going to sell these minerals because they can never be replaced again. But it is a definite solution. It is a definite possibility. If you want to be in and out, it's totally up to you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because we had a few follow-up questions to that on that last episode. People were like, you know, so what happens when we sell? <laughs> uh, do you sell? What is the salvage value? Or am I taking this to the grave with me? And it, kind of what I'm hearing is it sounds like, you know, with all the demand factors for oil and gas and the fact that there's a limited supply in the United States and that's only over a very short period, that land is high or a very short range of acres. That land is so highly valuable, you wouldn't want to sell. It would be from an investment standpoint, it wouldn't necessarily be the best idea if you believe that there's more oil below that, right? Well, there's something I say all the time, Thomas, that when people listen to what I'm about to say and you really stop and think about it, it should be the most staggering reason why you'd never sell your minerals. And even my own partners don't listen to it, but I'm going to say it again. In 2008 or nine, these big shale basins, these buried Grand Canes loaded with this wet concrete formation made out of shale, S-H-A-L-E, was given a zero value for commercial production. We couldn't make it produce economic. You could drill it, you'd find oil and gas molecules, it wouldn't make any economic sense because it wouldn't flow. So now watch. The mineral owners over those shale minerals, over that shale basin, were given zero value for that potential reserve. You fast forward it 14 years from 2010 to 2024, we now have gone to be the number one oil producer in the world because the oil being pulled out of those shale plates. Watch. We're at about an eight and a half to nine percent economic recovery factor. What that means is in northern Oklahoma, it's about 50 million barrels of oil equivalent per square mile. We're only getting out eight or nine percent today. We had zero percent 14 years ago. And what that's trying to tell you is if I got 50 million barrels in place and just by today's limited technology, I'm only getting out eight or nine percent. What does technology look like in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years? So if I can get another one or two or three percent economically viable reserves, it takes my $15,000 an acre mineral today and makes it worth twenty dollars or $30,000 or $40,000 an acre. So I don't intend on selling because there's only oil and gas to so many places. And if I'm only getting 8 to 9% recoverable today, and it was zero 14 years ago, I just got to trust that technology for EVs, cars, NASA is going to get better and better. And if so, guess what? I'm going to get a higher recovery factor. It means my, my minerals could be worth double or triple the value in 10 years, purely because of a higher extraction rate based on technology and more economical ways of recovering. So I plan on never selling my minerals, zero. Now, I'm not stupid. Eckert is about, we'll end up at about a billion dollars in cash paid for minerals by the end of this year. And I'm not stupid. If somebody comes along, which they will, and knocks on the door and says, you guys are cash flowing 15% on a billion dollars, 
we want to buy your minerals. Okay, great. Let's run it at an eight cap, seven cap, six cap, whatever we think is a comparable value. And they say, all right, we'll pay you $3 billion. I say, great. I'll sell you one third for a billion. I'll keep the other two thirds. So I'll get all my money off the table, take a billion, put it in the pocket. It gives me a value of three to one and I'll keep the other two thirds. I'm not a dummy. I will sell if it re gives me fuel in my economic portfolio engine by taking that money and then go back out buying more minerals again. But for me to sell out my minerals, it would have to be a price that far exceeds any short range cash on cash return because somebody wants those minerals and that cash flow higher than I do. But I'm not, so I'm not stupid from that standpoint, but otherwise I'm a never seller. That's fascinating. I was going to jump in with a question about, so you kind of talked about as you're an investor, you're the landlord, right? And this oil and gas company is kind of the tenant. Yep. I was curious, like how much are they kind of the landlord and tenant to themselves? Like, is it they're always just the tenant or are they ones going out to actually acquire land as well? Yeah, you normally have uh, in this business, like very much like traditional real estate. Some people are raw land developers. They don't ever want to go vertical. They want to buy land and pilot, get an annex, put in utilities. They never plan on building a vertical structure. They'll sell it to Home Depot, Chick-fil-A or whatever. Then you have developers who are vertical developers. They want to do these big box developments and they're going to rent them out and lease them. And then they want to sell them. And then you have the end, which is going to be the REITs who are buying stabilized properties and fully loaded up. Oil and gas is the same way. Usually expiration companies want to only explore for oil and gas. They don't want to be in the pipeline sector, right? And usually what happens is you might have an oil company who says, I'll buy minerals when we're out leasing minerals. If the guy I'm leasing from says, you know, instead of just leasing my minerals, why don't you just buy them from me? So they're not stupid. They definitely want to buy minerals when they can make sense of it, but that is not their business plan. Their business plan is, now watch, if they cut, let's say the three of us owned a two-mile section of land, 1,280 acres, they're going to drill a horizontal wells on it. We're the three brothers and we own it all. They're going to come to us and say, we want to give you a 20% royalty and you're going to give us 80%. We're going to pay you $10,000 an acre. We're going to pay you $12.8 million to lease your minerals. We're going to drill within 36 months. We're going to drill five, 10 to $15 million. We're going to spend 50 to $60 million in wells. And you guys get 20% of all the revenue for free, right? We're not likely to sell those minerals because why? Why would I do anything with you to give me $12.8 million and 20% of future profit? I'm, I'm happy camper, right? So if you remember what I said at the beginning, they're looking for three to one. They want to take that 50 or $60 million and ultimately get out $180 million. $180 million at 20% makes us a lot of money. So I don't plan on selling. Now, the flip side is this, this may not be all 1280. We might have a cousin who owns 80 acres and they just need the cash because they're very poor at finance. Well, they may go sell those minerals for fifteen dollars or $20,000 an acre because why? Well, because they need the cash more than we do and they're not long-term thinkers, so they sell. The oil companies will buy what's in front of them, but their primary goal is to own 80% of the revenue. They don't care about the 20%. So they want their money into drilling, not into buying minerals. It kind of sounds like kind of a Walgreens situation where it's, yeah, I always kind of ask the question, like, why doesn't Walgreens go own their own buildings? And they're always kind of, you know, triple net leases. It kind of sounds like the same thing. They're not in the business of owning their real estate. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense. That That actually helps a lot. The other question I had was, what if I'm someone who doesn't have the 250 right? In cash to invest. And I'm not an accredited investor, which is going to be some of our listeners here. Let's say I've got 50 grand or hundred grand. What would you kind of direct to this person if they're saying, hey, I understand what Troy's saying. I do want to get into oil and gas investments to kind of balance my portfolio. Where would you kind of point them next? Warren Buffett. No, I'm serious. Warren Buffett is now at about 40 to $50 billion invested in Oxy and Chevron. Warren Buffett saw Oxy buy out Crown Quest about a month ago. He increased his position the next day. Chevron bought out Hess, 
family-owned business for $57 billion. Warren has shunned all the green energy and said, I'm investing in U.S. oil and gas because I believe, like all his other stocks, there are going to be tremendous upside in buying in these major oil companies because they're basically much more valuable than they are their stock is showing. So if I've got fifty dollars or $100,000, I'm probably going to go out and buy $10,000, $20,000 of Exxon. I'm going to buy ten or 20000 of Chevron. I might buy some Oxy. And I'm going to do that because with the consolidation that's happening in the industry, there won't be 40 oil companies developing these minerals. There'll be 20. And in about 10 years now, there'll be 10. And so the companies who have the bandwidth will literally control most of the drilling. Well, guess what that's going to do? It's going to have a higher demand for oil because there's going to be less drilling. They're going to drill less as they combine company. Less drilling means less supply, which means higher commodity prices. So I told my investors back in 2020, I said, if you can't afford to buy minerals by Exxon, it was trading about $33 a share. I said, it's a $100 stock. Went up to 120. I think today it's about 105, 106. If I want to make money, Exxon pays me like a 3.4% dividend and the stock's tripled or quadrupled in four years. Today, I think those stocks are suppressed. And I think in five years, you can see those stocks up 50% to double just because they're accumulating so much assets and those reserves in the ground are going to be so much more valuable over the next five years. So that's what I would do if I was not accredited and I just needed to play the energy market. And by the way, that's a smart move because other stocks can be drugged down, even though oil stocks will be drugged down, they'll be the first to recover because it's based on true asset value, which is booked reserves in the ground. I've owned Exxon since I was like 21 years old. That makes a lot of sense. And just for everybody listening in here, of course, you know, please go speak to your own financial advisors before making any financial or investment decisions. But would it make more sense for somebody to invest in just a handful of stocks or go for like an oil and gas ETF, which has like a basket of maybe a handful of these companies? Well, I'm, I'm kind of a contrarian. So, you know, I don't go to the horse track and put $10 down on every single horse in the race, right? Right. Uh, I, like, I like to measure them based on their earnings per share. I like to have them based on their dividends they pay. I like to, I like to determine. So for me, I'm not a guy who buys an ETF. I want to put my money where my mouth is. So for me, and, and again, back to your disclaimer, by the way, guys, I'm not giving you advice. I was asked, what would I do? So that was a Troy deal. But like Troy today, I'd be doubling my position in Exxon. I'd be doubling my position in Chevron and I'd double my position in Oxy because I think the smartest stock player on the planet Earth and probably will never be beaten is Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett has said $50 billion is going in two companies because he thinks what they bought was so value oriented. I'm going to make, give you a stark reality for all those who are naysayers or doubting how solid this oil and gas investment is, right? Exxon, the largest oil company on the planet, right? Just took 100% of last year's income and bought Pioneer out for $60 billion in the Permian Basin. Exxon did that, not because they don't have the entire world to go invest. They said, we're going to invest our 100% of our income last year into Pioneer for $60 billion because they believe they bought that $60 billion and it's probably worth five to 10 times what they paid for. They probably think it's a half a trillion to a trillion dollars in future value. So I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I sure know how to stand next to and follow the smartest guy in the room. So for me, the fact that I'm buying minerals and drilling wells with the major oil companies puts me in the position of not questioning the integrity, the intellectual skill sets going into those selections. I'm simply putting myself in position as a mineral owner and a participant in the wells, partnering with the smartest traders and marketers and pipeline guys and geologists and geophysicists on the planet Earth. Other countries hire our people to run their oil fields. That's how good the U.S. is at what we do in oil and gas. I, Troy Eckert, Eckert Enterprise and our partners, we simply are a microcosm of that by saying, we're just going to be the tick on the back of that bull elephant running through the forest. We're just going to ride him all the way to the honey hole. That's what we've been doing. <laughs> 
This has been super insightful. I know I took some notes here on, on some of these things. Who knows? There might be some moves being made. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. But yeah. this is definitely eye-opening. And it, look, you know, Warren Buffett, something that uh, Warren Buffett's a big inspiration of mine. I look at him and you got to look at his investment track record is amazing, right? So if he's doing this and you hop on his back <laughs> and just follow what he's doing, right? So I think he owns 52 stocks out of 4,200. I think the man is incredibly successful, but he's also very selective. Keep in mind one thing that's very important because the United States is the only country with privately owned oil and gas companies. Everybody else is owned by the states, right? Because of that, we have the freedom of using intellectual prosperity, intellectual skill sets to be able to refine our process every day of the week. And we're motivated by profit. You know, everybody hates the free market, but we're motivated by profit. So when you start thinking about being able to own a piece, there's no other mineral rights you can buy in any other country. It's owned by the government. The United States is the only place you can buy mineral rights. Other countries and other investors outside the country come to the U.S. to buy mineral rights because you can't buy it in any other country. And then to know that you have the highest valued oil and gas companies with the highest intellectual skill sets actually drilling for you for free. So here's, here's simple math. I, lo I love the simplicity of this whole thing, right? My mantra at Eckerd is just follow the rigs. Hey, Troy, where's the best basin in the country? Um, Permian Basin in Texas and Oklahoma have 73% of all the drilling rigs in the U.S. Mm, that's the two states I'm going to buy minerals in. I don't have to be smart. That's just where the oil companies say 73% of the best oil locations are. There's only 600 rigs drilling at a time. They're drilling on either one or two square miles. You do the math to say that really means that we're drilling the next 600 wells on the best 600 locations out of 400 million acres. Where should I buy minerals? Under the next 600 locations. And so by preponderance of reducing the overwhelming size, the oil and gas business by using common sense, narrows 400 million acres down to very select acres. And then what Troy gets to do is just decide based on technology, pulling data offline, is Exxon better than Chevron? Is Chevron better than Oxy? Is Oxy better than Diamondback, et cetera? Because we get to analyze that from the data scrape and it tells us with no emotions how those jockeys size up, which oil basins are the best, which zones are the best. And we do it all by analytics, which gives us just a very unemotional, but extremely scrutinized buy box that says, here's what we buy, here's where we buy and the price we pay. And this is what our financial returns are going to be. And we just kicked it out of the park because we've been so disciplined. But that's that's why this business has changed. We didn't have this stuff on the internet 10 years ago. You couldn't tell me what Exxon drilled and how they completed the well. It was not online. These people who created the software and scraped that data, hard copy out of the counties and out of the reporting, now have accumulated that where my in-house engineers can go through that data and they can look at a thousand wells in, in a day. So it's changed the whole dynamics because now it's such a modern industry. Never happened before in my career. This episode has been extremely enlightening. Like it's just even more understanding of how this oil and gas industry works. And I'm just like sitting here saying, how do I, I need to get involved. I need to get involved at some point. So Ryan, I don't know if you have any questions here. Um, any, no, no questions. I can help. I don't know how much time we have, but I can help close out with two or three things that I, the common questions I get from my investors. And they're always repeated questions, which is Troy, is there ever time to take a break? Is there ever time just to pull back because there's not an opportunity because I hate financial planners, no offense to anybody, financial planner, because I've never had a financial planner in 40 years say, the market looks pretty dicey. I think cash is your best position. They don't make fees on cash, right? So the question is, is there ever time you should not be deploying capital? And the answer is probably, but it depends. Why? There's probably more buying opportunities when the market's in chaos and distressed than there is when the market's healthy. 
The problem is nobody wants to buy when the market's in chaos. So somewhere between chaos and super high values is a point of neutrality where you may not be on either side of that seesaw. You might be in neutral zone where you say, maybe let's take a deep breath. So the way Eckert has done that is we've accumulated an enormous inventory of minerals and assets that we've acquired that we pay with our own money. And we just wait and let those things mature so we can decide whether on the left side or the right side of the seesaw. So because we're a debt-free company, because we built up an inventory, we have no pressure. We have working capital that covers all of our expenses, all of our overhead, covers my entire business because I've been doing this for 40 years. We love the position of we don't have to sell anything today. Now, the second part of that equation is where are you going in five years with your plan? You know, if you have 250,000, you might want to put 50,000 in five portfolios. Cash flow starts in six months on number one, number two starts in seven months, et cetera, et cetera. So by the time you get a year out, all six portfolios, five portfolios are online. Now you're getting this combination of return on capital, maturity of assets, and you can decide, pull the cash out, use it for other investments, or continue to buy minerals to create a really, really strong, deep portfolio. But you want to use the tax side of that to decide, is it direct, self-directed IRA, 1031, or combination of all three. So this is really a very well-woven industry where the tax advantage, the income, and the type of asset really allows someone to sit down and think very clearly about how to use oil and gas to offset and help the rest of their portfolio, even outside of the energy space. I think the last thing I tell your viewing audience is, this is the scariest part. There are very, very few, and I can't probably put five on my hand, people in the oil and gas industry as sponsors who are honest or trustworthy or competent. So you're going to have a lot of it. There's a, there's a guy out there raising a $200 million blind pool fund says in his offering documents, he's charging 15% commission. Well, there's 45 million gone. Uh, he says he's going to do a blind pool, which means he's going to buy what he wants. Guy's been around 30 years. He's on every major podcast. He's out there pitching across all spaces. I don't think the guy's ever found oil and gas in his life, but $200 million, he's going to raise that money. And it's it's like a Houdini. Your money's going to be gone. There's a lot of smaller players and they say, well, I'm a small guy. I do this as and that. So my point to your audience is, this is a tough industry not because the wells aren't successful, not because it's just not incredibly profitable. It's tough because you can't go to a single website and look up and say, this well compared to this well, what's the, what's the value differential? This mineral versus that mineral, what's the value differential? How do I compare this oil company to this oil? There's nothing out there. So the, the main thing I would tell your audience is really embrace energy. Want to be part of it, but do your homework. And you're going to find there's very, very few to invest with. But if you get with the right company, it is a tremendous value proposition overall, but it requires incredible patience and due diligence. Ask the tough questions, demand the answers, make them put it in writing because then it's fraud with intent and they will not put it in writing. So that's your first clue how to make sure you stay out of the ditch with these guys. No, that's excellent advice. Like always, everybody out there who's investing as a limited partner in any transaction, it's always who, not how. Who is the who? Do they know what they're doing? And you have to make sure you find the right person. And just because someone could go out there and go market all of their syndication opportunities across all these asset classes, whether it's you know multifamily or commercial, whatever it is, doesn't necessarily mean they know the asset class they're marketing to. So you have to make sure you do your due diligence, make sure you're getting the right ship with the right person. And that's how you're going to minimize your risk. Troy, I want to thank you for jumping on the show again today. Any final words before we wrap up? No, I really appreciate what you guys are doing. I will tell you, there's, there's a, a strong, strong correlation between traditional real estate and oil and gas because they're both real estate. We found so many sophisticated traditional real estate investors have now learned and embraced the oil and gas. And now they see it as a 
great tool. It's an addition to the portfolio. A lot of the same things that are that are in one asset class or another. It's just the same horse with a different name. And I think that's really the thing to stress. It's not the boogeyman. It's a fantastic industry. And it is really something that's a cornerstone in your portfolio. So with your organization and other groups that are out there educating and informing, there is a whole new class of accredited investors who are embracing oil and gas direct investments. And they're being educated by fantastic opportunities like you guys are presenting today. And I just challenge everybody, be open-minded, do your homework, but listen carefully. Uh, Thomas and Ryan have great questions, great information. This is the right place to be for continuation on oil and gas education. Thanks again for taking the time today to come on. Uh, for everybody who's listening, Troy will be back next month. We're going to be doing another episode on the tax and risks, a deep dive into that aspect of it. So go ahead and stay tuned. If you're not already subscribed, go ahead and subscribe to the show and go ahead and check out episode 252, Troy's first appearance on the show where we went and talked about oil and gas as well. Thanks again, Troy. And we'll catch everybody on the next week's episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. Hey, before we wrap up, we were chatting after the episode about the future of this series. And I think what we're going to do is Ryan and I will do a deep dive into the tax benefits of investing in oil and gas. And then Troy will join us for a final appearance in the series to close things out. We want to thank Troy again for taking the time to join us on the show. If you want to learn more about Troy and investing in oil and gas, you can head on over to EckerdEnterprises.com. And hey, if you're a CPA or EA looking to make a change, we are hiring tax advisors. We are always hiring. You can apply today by going to www realestatecpa.com slash careers. Again, that's www.therealestatecpa.com slash careers. That's all for today. And we'll catch you on next week's episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.